G'day, mate. Forty here. So my friend uh, Ricardo had an interesting tweet today. He said, uh, "I've come back around on Richard. Not sure I ever really left. Truly, the greatest pundit of his generation." So uh, Ricardo famously had to leave the house when he he wanted to go interview uh, Richard Spencer because it created uh, that much conflict. So I I get this assessment. I mean, Richard Spencer is an entertaining, compelling figure. Like, people like Richard Spencer, people like J.F. Garupi, people like Dennis Prager, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, uh, Jordan Peterson, they have a certain gravitas, they have a certain presence that just does, you know, compels your attention. They change the molecules of the air around you where they, they walk into the same room as you but uh, so many things to analyze in this statement so number one uh, what type of person comes up with a list or a designation of the greatest pundit of his generation right only someone with a way above average level of interest in politics so let's say you're a pundit who fundamentally believed that we had skies of blue trees of green we had dogs wagging their tails that uh, overall politics for 99% of people, 99% of the time, is not important. Right, okay, but a pundit with that fundamental worldview who looked around and said, what a beautiful world we live in. What a beautiful country we live in. What a beautiful community I live in. I am so grateful to live in Los Angeles or Charlottesville or New York City or Chicago or Seattle or some small town in Florida. I am so grateful for the opportunities that I have as an American. I am so grateful for my government and for the way it did an above average job dealing with, with COVID. Right? That person right, is not going to attract a, a rabid following because the type of person who has a rabid interest in politics, like I do and like Ricardo does, it wants to hear something exciting, wants to hear descriptions of reality that he himself cannot see. Right? That's the motivation for the pundit, is to paint pictures that you cannot see on your own. The prime motivation, the best way of understanding punditry is to understand that the primary incentive that the pundit faces is to increase his own importance. And the primary way of increasing your own importance is, one, to do something that you know, many people can do, which is to tell people what they want to hear. But really, the best way, the most effective way for increasing your status as a pundit is to paint pictures of things that ordinary people can't see. So you go like Dennis Prager and you say, we're living in 1930s Germany. We're living in Russia just right before or right after the communist takeover. That uh, we're living through a civil war, right? Pundits are known for their hyperbolic pronunciations. When you listen to Richard Spencer, you'll get a lot of you know, hyperbolic pronunciations about things that you just don't see in reality. And it's so compelling, it's so you know, fun to listen to Richard Spencer because he is painting often these detailed compelling, you know, attention-grabbing descriptions of the world around you that you just don't recognize, that you don't see. But if you listen to Richard Spencer, then you get to see the unseen, right? He has taken on, the the pundit has taken on the role that used to go to clergy, that they would paint, they would make real for you unseen worlds. It used to be unseen worlds of the spirit, unseen worlds of, of God, unseen worlds of religion, unseen worlds of demons and angels, right? That's what, you know, the the charismatic preacher used to give. Now the pundit is giving you unseen worlds that you don't see, that there's a civil war going on around you, that you are living under communist tyranny, all right? Yeah, Richard Spencer blocked me years ago. So a great deal of people who watch this show believe that... uh, They live under communist tyranny in the United States of America. About the freest, most prosperous, most powerful nation the world has ever seen. And yet they choose to believe that they are living under communist tyranny. 
It's just unbelievable. And a pundit who can tap into that yearning to explain why you know someone just goes from serial failure to serial failure. Hey, it's not your fault. It's the it's the system. It's America. America's you know a communist uh, tyranny r- right now. That's why you're having these these troubles. Right? There's an enormous audience for that. But it's it's mainly the success goes to those who can paint pictures of of secularized forms of demons and angels and conflicts, you know, metaphysical, physical, psychological, spiritual, philosophical, religious, like Richard is devoting himself to starting a new religion. And so that's exciting. That's compelling. Now, this type of pundit, right, the the type of person who's going to appeal to someone who is looking to anoint the greatest pundit of his generation cannot be someone who says, what a beautiful world we live in here in the United States or you know what unparalleled prosperity opportunity and and safety is afforded to us in in the first world today you know thank god for the vaccines thank god for public health thank god for our medical and scientific establishment thank god for our you know police and, and military All right what a beautiful blue sky i'm looking at right now look at those trees of green think about that fluffy happy friendly dog that I was playing with earlier today, right? There is, there's no way to rise in status and develop a strong following as a pundit with this idea that uh, (laughs) what a beautiful world we live in. We're we're so lucky to live in the United States or Australia or France or, or Germany for, for all our problems right now. So, that's the, the key to successful punditry. Paint things that people cannot see. Now, how do you paint things that people cannot see? Right? By telling them things that don't exist. Right? That's the easiest, most effective way of painting things that people cannot see. You tell people a bunch of things that do not exist. So to be a winning pundit, to be a successful pundit, even to reach the level of a JF RP, all right, or a Dennis Prager, or a Ben Shapiro, or a Richard Spencer, right? You cannot optimize for truth. You cannot make truth your primary objective. To the best of my knowledge, I make truth my primary objective on this show within the confines that I'm not going to blow up my life, right? But I'm willing to make a lot of sacrifices to optimize truth. So if you're going to optimize truth, you will be, in all likelihood, denied status. Yes, I keep telling you, Richard Spencer blocked me many, many years ago, something like uh, 2018. But if you optimize for truth, you're going to be blocked from status. You're going to be blocked from prestige. You're going to be blocked from many sources of income. You're going to be blocked from most forms of success. You're going to be blocked from you know, friendly appearances in the mainstream media, you're going to be blocked from developing a cult following, right? There will be a lot of sacrifices you'll have to make if you choose to optimize for truth. I choose to optimize for truth. I cannot provide you an exciting show like Richard Spencer does because I optimize for truth. Richard Spencer optimizes for grabbing the maximum of attention, right? That is the number one value for Richard Spencer to use his abilities to secure the maximum of attention for Richard Spencer. And he's great at it. He comes from a theatrical background and he has a compelling theatrical manner. And you will get people like my good friend Ricardo, understandably pronouncing him the greatest pundit of his generation because he is so theatrical. Now, There is a downside to being excessively theatrical like Richard Spencer, and that is truth is not a particularly high value. You cannot maximize for theatricality and attention-seeking like Richard Spencer does and still put a high priority on truth. You you, you can't reach Ben Shapiro, J.F. Garupi, Dennis Prager levels if you optimize primarily for truth. You have to give up a lot to optimize for truth, because a lot of truth is boring, right? So you cannot produce as exciting a, a worldview, as exciting a product as those who do not optimize for truth. 
Truth is frequently seemingly contradictory. Truth is complicated, often, and nuanced. Truth is frequently highly sophisticated. Truth will inevitably be unpopular much of the time. Right? You will offend people. You will become isolated if you optimize for truth. There is a tremendous price to be paid for optimizing truth. If you want to succeed as a live streamer in terms of success at making a living, you will have a lot easier time if you maximize for excitement. If you maximize for spectacle, Richard Spencer has constructed his public life to maximize for spectacle, to maximize for constructing essentially an ongoing theatrical performance that is highly tuned to grabbing and sustaining your attention. Now, the only way you can do that is at the price of telling the truth. I'll give you a very boring truth. We get to decide how much violent crime that we have in this country or any country by how much we decide to you know, punish it. Right? If we lock up violent criminals for a long time, we will slash our violent crime rates. Now, for Richard Spencer, this is an exceedingly boring perspective. Right? So... Reducing tens of thousands of murders a year is just boring. It is not compelling. And so Richard Spencer sees absolutely no value in the Republican Party, even though the Republicans consistently, more than Democrats, want to punish and carry out punishment against violent criminals. But for Richard Spencer, that is not exciting enough to grab and compel and sustain your attention and your donations and your subscriptions. Right? It's such an elementary truth. We get to decide our crime rates by how much we punish people who do violent crime. Right? We can essentially choose how much murder we put up with in our society by choosing how much punishment we dole out to people who commit murder. Such a boring, routine, Republican perspective that Richard Spencer just finds boring. It's not theatrical. It's not, hey, hi, guys. Let me tell you about Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and let me apply that to Lady Gaga and Kanye West and this great movie I saw last night. Right? It's not theatrical, right? It's just, it's just uh, downbeat. The GOP is increasingly the part of gangster worship. Republicans consistently are more supportive of punishing violent criminals than Democrats. There's, that's just indisputably true, right? Uh, point out to me prominent Democrats who more than the average Republican want to punish violent criminals. Just start reeling off the names. Give me the names of prominent Democrats who more than an average Republican want to punish violent criminals and the, the greatest, the most appropriate punishment for murderers is to execute them. So who are the leading Democrats who are loudly, proudly, publicly and effectively proclaiming the need for an increased use of capital punishment. You can't name any, right? Because for all the Republican weaknesses, and no matter how boring the Republicans are, right? Republicans are far more supportive of capital punishment than Democratic politicians, far more. They are far more in favor of long prison terms for violent criminals than Democratic politicians, but that's boring. That's not exciting and theatrical. It's not, you can't work that into, you know, a, a compelling Richard Spencer monologue. So we, we all have egos and we all seek to maximize our importance. And I'm seeking to maximize my importance right now by proclaiming that I optimize for truth while these other people, they optimize for theatrical performances. Right. So Scotty Pippen, remember, he was second banana to Michael Jordan on the Chicago Bulls. And when Michael took a break from playing basketball to enter the minor leagues and play baseball, the Chicago Bulls had a very difficult time of it. And in a crucial game, in the crucial last second timeout, right, where the, the Bulls absolutely needed, I think, something like a three-point shot. Uh, this is recounted in The Last Dance, the excellent 10-part Netflix documentary. Uh, the Chicago Bulls coach drew up a play where this European player would get to take the last shot. Scotty Pippen was so offended. He 
It was so miffed that he wouldn't even take the court because he wasn't going to be given the ball. Now, this European guy took the ball, sunk the basket, won the game, got the balls into the playoffs. That didn't matter to Scottie Pippen. He still stands by what he does. He's a classic me-first kind of guy. And pundits, overwhelmingly, are me-first kind of guys. If their success, their income, their status and prestige and their access to you know, attractive young women's you know, vulnerable nether regions comes at the cost of confusing you, comes at the cost of you know, diminishing the, the quality of your life, comes at the cost of conducting effective, you know, campaign of epistemic sabotage. All right. That's that that doesn't matter to them because they are putting a priority on their own self-importance. So what was the great uh, insight by Richard Spencer that uh, caused Ricardo to you know, wax lyrical about the greatest pundit of our generation? It was Richard saying that uh, Donald Trump should come back and be Speaker of the House. Now, Donald Trump would be an absolutely terrible Speaker of the House. Donald Trump is not at all suited for the position of Speaker of the House. But if you're theatrical, right, this is the type of thing that you come out with. Well, well, then Donald Trump should just come out and become Speaker of the House of Representatives. That's the, the path forward for Republicans, right? That's a you know, flaming, theatrical, you know, attention-grabbing, exciting, interesting, compelling presentation that is completely removed from truth, reality. It's just a horrible idea. But, hey, it's theatrical. It means more attention for me. And, heck, I'm the greatest pundit of my generation. And I've got more theatrical hot takes coming up. And I get to have these theatrical hot takes that will just so compel your attention because I do not optimize for truth and I do not optimize for decency. I do not optimize for goodness. I do not optimize for what's in the best interest of the United States of America or for my particular people. I optimize for me, getting attention for me, for the theatrical expression of my id. That's what I optimize for. So, I mean, this applies just as much to Orthodox rabbis as it does to NBA players and plumbers and pundits and live streamers and attorneys. So after World War II, Yehiel Yaakov Weinberg, perhaps the greatest rabbi in Europe who survived the Holocaust, he was invited to come to Yeshiva University, the flagship modern Orthodox university in New York City. And he did not want to come to YU, and he didn't want to come to Skokie Yeshiva in Chicago. Why? Because he would not get to be number one there. So Joseph Bear Soloveitchik was number one at YU, and Yehiel Yaakov Weinberg had an ego that would not permit him to be number two. And he would not go to Skokie because he would have been number two there. So instead, he stayed in a small town in Switzerland because his ego would not permit him to be number two. And uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, Joseph Bear Soloveitchik, his ego would not have permitted him to be number two to anyone. He could not have, you know, he could not have uh, handled it. Rupert, throw 40 the damn ball. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, we all tend to maximize for our own importance, and I'm trying to do that right now. I think I'm being explicit. I'm trying to maximize my own importance by saying that I optimize for truth, while these other people maximize for theatrical presentations. I mean, what do you want from a pundit? Right? Overwhelmingly, people do not primarily want truth from a pundit. Overwhelmingly, they want to feel something. They want to feel good, and they want to feel excited. They will love a pundit who can just present the greatest hits, right? So just like Top 40, how does Top 40 talk radio, uh, Top 40 music radio succeed by playing the hits, the latest greatest hits over and over and over again? So too in talk radio. That's the formula. You play the greatest hits. Talk radio is dominated by the right wing. So you play the greatest hits of conservative thought over and over and over again in every you know possible situation you have. There's six to ten stock perspectives that you just keep offering over and over and over again. You just keep playing the hits. 
the other alternative, if you don't want to play the hits, and Richard Spencer considers himself rightly too good for that, is you come up with, you know, unseen and usually worlds that aren't even there, right, that you then paint and describe for people. So just like in an earlier time, preachers and clergy would lay out, you know, tales of demons and angels and heaven and hell and all sorts of unseen worlds where spiritual forces are doing battle, or your, your secular gurus who, who now take on this role, all right, like uh, Richard Spencer, he is doing the, the secular equivalent. He's taking you into this unseen spiritual world where great spiritual forces are, are doing battle, and he's telling you what's really going on. Well, not claiming that either rabbi your name was above such motivations, what evidence do you have that they were primary? Well, just learn about them. Uh, Yehiel Yaakov Weinberg was invited to YU. He was invited to Skokie Yeshiva after World War II. And why did he stay in, in Europe? Why did, he, well, why did he move to a small town in Switzerland? Because he at least got to be number one in that uh, small town. Okay, playing the hits, right? That's that's a surefire way to being more successful as a pundit, talk show host. Uh, essentially, act as a cover band for the best right-wing tropes. Just repeat them over and over again. That's what most of right-wing talk radio is for. Having a conscience will not serve you if you want to become a champion live streamer, champion pundit, champion talk show host. Because if you want to be a great live streamer, pundit, talk show host, your primary obligation is to put on a great theatrical spectacle which can only be done at the cost of truth. But you want to optimize for truth, then all sorts of things you'll have to pay for. You'll lose, you'll lose many of your sources of income. You'll lose many opportunities for income. You'll very likely lose your other jobs. You'll lose the possibility of gaining other jobs. You'll lose status You'll lose prestige. You'll lose uh, access to attractive young women. You'll lose your social standing. You'll become alienated from the people who you most want to get close to. You may be a convert to Orthodox Judaism, and you may want a lot of Shabbos invites and holiday invites. Well, if you optimize for truth, you're not going to get a lot of invites because no insular group, and Orthodox Jews are an insular group, you know, primarily optimizes for truth. You do not get to build a high-intensity community optimizing for truth. You build a high-intensity community by optimizing a particular hero system, a particular narrative that involves a great deal of how you know, your group is oppressed and that your group is you know, shining the light for the, for the rest of the world. The people that you will love the most will not love you back much of the time, if you optimize for truth. Now, you want to succeed with people, you need to optimize for agreeableness. You want to optimize for making them feel good. right? You want to be liked, then optimize for making other people feel good. Bring a smile to other people's face. Give them that feeling of great, you know, happy, uplifted, right? when they think of you, see you, talk to you. Right? That will make you liked. That will make you liked in person. That will make you liked as a public speaker. That will make you liked as a live streamer and a, a pundit and a parasocial personality is if you give people good feelings, if you help them to feel better, all right? If you, you know, unlock their happiness and joy and excitement. But you're not going to be able to do that nearly as effectively if you optimize for truth. Forty's teeth and appearance are amazing. <laughs> Is it possible that Rabbi Yehiel Yaakov Weinberg might have preferred the climate, the scenery, and other connections to Switzerland? No, it was primarily ego. I mean, read the Mark Shapiro biography of Yehiel Yaakov Weinberg. I'm not criticizing him for it. I mean, everyone has has an ego. I certainly do. I mean, telling the truth is just not exciting. Right? It's not going to electrify your audience. You're not going to just charge up the, the mountain to high status income and you know access to young women's bodies by telling the truth. Right? 
it's akin to let's say you optimize your family, right? You make your family your number one priority, right? You're not going to be in all likelihood as exciting a public personality if your number one value is your family. Let's say you optimize for being faithful to your wife, right? There's a lot of excitement that you're going to have to give up. Like I just can't picture Richard Spencer ever remaining faithful to, to a woman because he would have to stop being Richard Spencer if he was going to be faithful to his woman. Let's say Richard Spencer optimized, he made his family his number one priority. He would be nothing like the Richard Spencer we see right now. Let's say Richard Spencer made his community or the well-being of his people his number one priority. He would have to cease being Richard Spencer. The Richard Spencer we, we see and have enjoyed over the past few years is nothing like a Richard Spencer who makes his number one priority the well-being of his people or of his family or of his community, right? If you choose to be monogamous, right, there's a whole lot of things that you're going to give up. There's a whole lot of excitement that you have to give up. You're going to have to make a lot of dull, dreary choices. You're going to have to turn away from pleasure and excitement and, you know, thrill-seeking, and if, if you want to make your family your number one priority, or if you want to make truth your number one priority. So we get to choose you know, what we optimize for, and we get to choose what type of people we listen to, and we get to choose, are we choosing to listen to people primarily because they are exciting, because they are telling us what we want to hear? Right, because they are painting unseen worlds that are just so thrilling to contemplate? Or do we choose to optimize for people who, to the best of their ability, you know, try to tell us the truth? You know, he's saying, what the heck, Forty? Let's get some Mark Shapiro in here. He talks about uh, the... Um the medical curriculum, there's going to be issues about, let's say, uh, uh, autopsy. I mean, you can imagine all the problems there's going to be. But then he says, um, he he says... um, So this is Joseph Beer-Soloveitchik considering how would I have reacted if the leaders of Yeshiva University had come to me and said they wanted to set up a, a medical school, right? So one problem with setting up a medical school at YU is that it's going to in all likelihood, diminish the prestige of the rabbis because there will be these alternate power centers in YU that are not dependent on people like Joseph Bear Soloveitchik. So rabbis, priests, ministers, they are every bit as driven by power and ego and influence and status and avoiding humility as plumbers and professional athletes and models, and TikTok stars. He, he talks about Shabbos here, that uh, people go to medical school and they assume that they're going to have to violate Shabbos, uh, all the things I just mentioned. But he, then he continues. He says that the establishment of the medical school at YU obviates all the issues of Shabbos and Halacha, all the issues that make it practically impossible for an Orthodox Jew to study medicine. In YU's medical school, no lectures will be presented on Shabbos. In the 50s, you had all sorts of classes on Shabbos in schools. Uh, the laboratories were closed on Shabbos. Shabbos will be the official day of rest. He says there's going to be a, a kosher cafeteria, a Beit Midrash. And then he says, he talks about in the second paragraph section, how Jewish doctors, again, I wasn't alive then, but in the 1950s, he says Jewish American doctors have no respect for religious values. The way he portrays it is that the average doctor in the 1950s, Jewish doctor, is, um, let's put it this way, is a very negative view, is antagonistic to... Yeah, because... To be a doctor, you have to get considerable secular education. The more secular education and expertise you get, the more likely you will be to explain and understand the world around you in secular and scientific terms, which is contrary to the religious worldview. So when religious leaders over the last 60 years have been so keen to say there's no contradiction between religion and science, they're only saying that because they're admitting that they've lost the war against science. You only make that kind of claim right after you've lost and and you want to you know have have a bit of the prestige that science has achieved and and you want some of that rubbing off on you right in every area where science and religion have conflicted over the past 150 years in the eyes of 
most people who think about and care about these issues, science has overwhelmingly proved triumphant. Science is increasing its prestige uh, on a regular basis. The one exception is that the scientific establishment in the first world, particularly the United States, has allowed itself to be essentially captured by the left, and so science has lost out a lot of prestige among uh, non-leftists over the last 10 years. Uh, Torah values. He says, we know of situations where physicians influence mothers to feed their children ham and eggs for breakfast. They told them that this is important. Or living on Passover. Um, he says that today it's impossible, practically impossible for a rabbi to discuss the issue of an ill person fasting on Yom Kippur with Jewish doctors because their response is cynical, he says, and vulgar. We know that according to Allah, if you want to know to fast on Yom Kippur, what does the rabbi know? So you have to speak to the doctor. The rabbi will speak to the doctor for you. But that's the assumption when the post came spoke about that they meant a doctor who was religious. And if he's not religious, at least the ones who have what course of action would I recommend to U.S. voters? I, I vote Republican. I only vote Republican because punishing criminals, law and order, and restricting immigration are my top concerns, as well as uh, trying to limit or even roll back the, the woke movement. So having judges who are not on the left is vitally important. So, yeah, I would want Americans to vote Republican, even though I'll admit that in many ways the, the Biden administration seems much more competent than the Trump administration. Now, I often say that uh, politics does not matter to 99% of people 99% of the time. On the other hand, the Biden administration has dramatically increased the odds of us getting into a nuclear war with Russia and with China. I mean, Joe Biden has done away with the historic American ambiguity doctrine with regard to Taiwan to repeatedly publicly state that the United States will come to the military aid of Taiwan, which risks a massive conflict with China, which would dramatically increase the odds of a nuclear exchange with, with China that could very well end life on Earth as we know it by essentially arming Ukraine against Russia. We have increased the chances of some kind of nuclear conflict in, in Europe. So that, that 1% of the time, the, the Biden administration has dramatically increased our chances of getting into a catastrophic nuclear war. The Biden administration has dramatically, I would say by 10 times, increased the odds of us getting into a nuclear war or any war with Russia and with China. I mean, this is an absolute disaster, complete own goal, completely unnecessary. This is this is the the one occasion where you know politics matters. I think if Donald Trump were reelected president, we would not have seen Russia invade Ukraine. What finally drove Putin to invade Ukraine was the highly pro-Ukrainian uh, policies of the Biden administration. Okay, I wonder what. Uh, you're wondering what Greg Gutfeld has to say. I'm wondering what Greg Gutfeld has to say. That if you build a country with borders, a military and a well-regulated law enforcement, prosperity won't be far behind. But you know what comes after that, don't you? Complacency, a false sense of security, then decline, followed by destruction. Because when the simplest of minds don't have to worry about barbarians at the gates, they start to develop something called luxury beliefs. You know, beliefs unconnected to reality. The belief that the bad guys are actually good guys, and to disagree with that makes us the bad guys. Because we're the oppressors who keep thugs from enjoying fun stuff like theft and violence and drug abuse and street pooping. Also known as a walking tour of San Francisco. But the saddest thing about luxury beliefs is not how naive they are, it's that they can kill, literally. Last week in Philly, a left-wing activist named John Kruger was brutally murdered in his own home. On Twitter and in print previously, however, Kruger had downplayed the violence gripping Philly and so many of America's cities. Do I think Kruger deserved to be murdered? Of course not. What happened to him is a tragedy. I hope they catch the scumbag who did it. I don't envy Philly police who are already dealing with muggers, dealers, and Eagles fans. <laughs> then in Brooklyn, New York, another left-wing activist and his girlfriend happened across what is commonly known as a New York street crazy. All of these street crazies are scary. Some of them are more than that. Ryan Carson was stabbed to death for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. This is the part where I might tell a joke, but there's nothing funny about Ryan Carson's death. 
He was likely told over the course of his adult life that believing that some people are dangerous, crazy, or just evil, that's a terrible prejudice. Unfortunately, the people who sold him that idea, usually progressive professors, they weren't around to help him that night. And if they were, I doubt they would have jumped in because liberal professors aren't really known for their brass balls. Remember the anti-police activist who was carjacked in her own driveway? Talk about convenient as far as carjackings go. It was a short walk home. <laughs> but she discovered something else about luxury beliefs. They'll get your luxury car stolen. In the end, progressive beliefs are like peacock feathers. They're all for show, and they attract predators. If you recall, she posted on Facebook the next day, quote, these criminals will not win. We need to take back our city. Well, let me translate that for you. I've been an idiot, and I'm joining the NRA. <laughs> yeah. She... Oh, you clap. Slowing me down. She backs the blue now that she's black and blue. <laughs> Things are getting so bad in our cities, even that Bible of luxury beliefs, the New York Times, is starting to lose faith. Last week, they wrote that America's downtowns are now spiraling from one crisis to the next. As spiking rates of homelessness, drug ODs, violent crime, and psychosis threaten to overwhelm the public safety once considered basic to the country's major cities. Wow, looks like there's one writer whose BLM t-shirt didn't save him from a mugging. I hope his biggest problem now is how to get that Biden-Harris bumper sticker off his Audi. Okay. But, of course, some true believers... What's going on with JF Garapi? So someone comments on Twitter that his personal life is insane. JF says, indeed, not by my choice, though. I love life rather relaxed personally. That's absolute delusion, right? JF loves chaos. He thrives on dysfunction. Uh, this is his choice. This is the life that he built. I built the life I've got, right? Life I've got right now, I chose it. I built it willingly, unwillingly, wittingly, unwittingly. This life is what I chose. And JF's life is what he chose too, right? I mean, the people that we attract into our life that we have relationships with are dramatic reflections of, of us. Breaking international dissident right news coming at you live we weren't expecting to do this one tonight i guarantee you that but we have breaking international drama news of the likes nobody was expecting here from jf gary epi point saying that the police in canada are looking for mama jf because in true mama jf fashion she has left her home in june and has disappeared from the map i am sure that mama jf is fine i know she has been safe for at least two days after i dropped her where she wanted in june Mama JF left our home entirely voluntarily to go live a life of adventure, wherever it would bring her. But I can't do the French accent, super sorry about that. But since she has electronically disappeared, but since she has electronically disappeared, not connecting to her cell phone or dating me or her family, I ask anyone who would have encountered her to just notify the police so that they can know she is safe and ask her. If she wants to leave a note to the police, me or her family, to ensure everyone of her safety. If you want to send an encrypted tip anonymously, <laughs> I can receive them at jfgaryepi at proton.me. Not making this up. Mama JF's missing. I can add a bit more context to this. Canadian police, I don't know anything about disappearance. I mean, drama, old alt-right content, which I'll do in a moment. But we'll just follow up. Somebody asked JF a couple of questions here. Somebody said... You were the last known person to see her since June. And Jeff said, whoa, 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 whoa. No, she hasn't been traveling and leaving an electronic trace far from mine. So I do not expect to be a suspect in her disappearance. <laughs> okay, Jeff. Okay there, dude. All right. So we got confirming there. Confirming. Jeff's confirming. What did somebody say? You really covered your bases then, huh? <laughs> So, just to be clear, in case of any misconstrued sense that I'm making any allegations, I want to be absolutely clear that JF has not buried Mama JF under the patio, okay? That has not happened, okay? There is absolutely no reason why JF should be a suspect in the disappearance of Mama JF. Everybody, hope we've got that clear. Now, just for the little bit of context then, I promised you I'd give you, is... If you've not been following up on the JF, Mama JF, law and history. Uh, 
Well, I won't give you the full backstory. You have to know who JF and Mama JF is. He's a Canadian YouTuber. Started uh, one of the early guys on the alt right, basically. Now, Mama JF is an interesting character, uh, but she did she did leave him a little while ago, publicly, and um, this was widely reported by JF himself. When the very immediate next day, he did a contest for a new wife, and invited applications from his viewers to become his new Mama JF. Uh, now. Uh, despite receiving many requests from adoring fan fangirls around the world wishing to be uh, come the new manager fly out to Canada and become the new breeding uh, <laughs> a partner for JF to inseminate his words not mine that's what he was looking for he was looking for a lady ready for insemination despite this uh, that f all those uh, searches and uh, the contest for new manager fell through and what happened was Mama JF returned to the home. Yeah. She, we, we don't know because Jeff is pretty private about what goes on about his relationship with Mama Jeff and stuff. Been very private. He always avoids questions about particularities to do with, uh, for instance, I'll just say it, whether they have any children. Now, this is on the back of the fact that one of his main talking points is the importance of having children. And so in order to do this talking about having children, it's pretty hard to hide the fact as to whether you're currently parenting. And so for a long time doing his show, he's spoken as if he was currently parenting, not just being an absent father, for instance, paying uh, by his own will or non-will and paying like support to another mother, which I think we do know exists somewhere else from a previous marriage or relationship uh, as well as anything else. But so Jeff talks about the importance of procreating uh, and having babies and doing this, he, he would often speak as if it was something he was currently doing. Uh, and then when Mama JF left, this time that I just told you about, when they had the, um, when JF had the contest for a new wife, uh, he's, there was some real weird moment where he said, she has left me, however, she has left me with a very special present. And the inference basically is, was, and was taken by many in the audience to be, a baby. That somehow, <coughs> without <coughs> without any of the viewers really noticing, somehow Mama JF, at some point, had had a baby with JF, and effectively had left the baby uh, in the home there with JF. Now, also, during this period of time while she was gone, there were a couple of instances where uh, doing Jeff, show. He, he he would also say to, to corroborate this line of thinking, this evidence that uh, there was a baby that he was now caring for alone, at least one. Uh, he would say like it was suddenly there were suddenly many more family commitments. Bearing in mind, uh, this would otherwise be an empty house apart from Jeff. He was talking about suddenly many more family commitments that Mama Jeff was no longer there, etc. But also, there was a couple of occasions, at least a couple that I noticed myself, where in this period of time where Mama Jeff disappeared. Uh, there was a sound of a baby crying that could be heard on the show and all of a sudden JF would go uh, I have to go for a moment and suddenly mute and turn the camera black and then come back and go everything is fine everybody it is just a moment I had to go and take my hay fever medication or something so the body of evidence suggests there was a baby there was a baby I I, I even joked we don't know if Mama JF has had the baby or stolen it <laughs> but there was a baby involved at least now, fast forward to June, I believe it was, of this year. So now June, July, August, September, we're in October. About four months ago, I kind of went around when I just stopped streaming, because I was going to stream about it, I remember. Mama JF has since left JF again. Gone. She's gone. She's done a flit in the night. And uh, I, I noticed this because somebody, if I can find it for you, if I had prepared, I'd have the tweet to show you. But it was somewhere in June, June the 7th or something like that. Somebody had said to JF, where is Mama JF? I hope she's okay. And he replied, she had left me again. And then since he's talked about it on the show that Mama JF is no longer around. And then a few months... Okay, here's a video of uh, JF Garapi. Uh, personal that I'm forced to talk about at this point. It's uh, I've been wanting to keep it relatively calmer and less, uh, less public, but uh, I've been forced by the by the various events because people have discovered about it. And so I might as well talk about it instead of letting rumors develop and all of the, 
all of the messy information that can step uh, that can stem from it. Um, so yeah, it's the disappearance of Mama JF. Mama JF has been disappearing in the sense of not leaving, uh, not leaving any contact, not leaving information about where she was. Uh, and I titled my episode "The Cost of Liberty" because I didn't want any of this. I'm just a family guy, and I've always been wanting to provide and secure for people around me. Uh, but there is one thing I cannot do in our society. I cannot stop you from doing crazy stuff. I cannot stop you from exposing yourself to risks when you say the words, I want to do it. When, when you claim your own liberty, you are on your own. No, we cannot uh, stop what other people say and do. We have no power. I can introduce someone to a book and they can blow up their life over it. And that's not on me. That's on them, right? Other people act and speak for their own reasons. On the other hand, we do have some influence over people. And I cannot do anything to protect you. And so <clears throat> that, uh, I don't know if Mama JF is in danger. I don't know where she is. Uh, but at this point, I'm forced to talk about it because people are spreading rumors on the internet. Because, so, so I'll just give you my, <clears throat> my perspective on all of this. And, and you know, people are, are accusing me of murder on, on the internet. It's like, you guys don't know. You guys don't know the police. I've been speaking with the feds on an everyday basis uh, for a couple of days now, for maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of days. For a couple of days, I've been speaking uh, to the police <clears throat> on a regular basis. So it all stems from Mama JF, you guys know, and I've stated it publicly in June, she left. She didn't want, uh, she, I mean, it's not even clear why she left and she's done it in the past. You guys have seen it who have been following the show for years. Uh, she, she wanted to go away. So that's, that's all uh, we often know with Mama JF. She wants to go away. She had done it once and had come back uh, to us um, weeks after. Uh, and you'll remember, she, she came on the show on the day she came back and she said something along the lines of, uh, well, I thought you want, you didn't want to be with me anymore. Uh, and so... ...moments ago. We're now fast-forwarded to a few moments ago where Jeff has just put out on Twitter that the police in Canada are looking for Mama Jeff. <laughs> we have a theory in chat here that, again, just to... We must phrase all this as alleged. Somebody here in the chat alleges that no white guilt has done it to silence her. Well, that's another story in its entirety. Yeah, Mama JF was absolutely scared to death of uh, the character who goes by the name No White Guilt because he has a particularly intense look that uh, just scared her, uh, triggered something from her past. She just started screaming at him. Sad situation for the potato was very much indeed, very much indeed. But again, just to be clear. Okay, let's see what else we got here. Oh. <clears throat> and, and I said to her, no, no, you left of your own will. Uh, but, but she says yes, and then she says yes, but I thought, I thought you wanted me to leave. That is sometimes the, the state of delusion in female minds, and I can't do anything about this. I have zero control over this. If we were in the society, the Christian society of 1920, maybe I could file some report and say, hey, my wife is a little crazy, she's a little out there. Can I control, can I own her, basically? <laughs> and I'm sure that, that there were, uh, I mean, basically you didn't have to file that paper in 1920s. Because in the, in the 1920s, this was called marriage. <laughs> but we are not in the 1920s, and we are in 2023 where uh, we have an experiment going on in society. What happens when you let these females do whatever the fuck they want? Well, <clears throat> what happens is that they sometimes make bad decisions. So um, in June, she left. And, and two days after leaving, so she left and she had a whole plan. She had... She had bought uh, camping material. She was on her way to some sort of survivalist trip. From what I understood, it looked like she was preparing for life in the wild. Uh, she promised me when she left that she would always be reachable and that I would be able to reach her to deal with all of the official papers. You know that she owns a lot of stuff and sometimes I need her signature. And I was like, and, and although, you know, we, we do have legal remedies for this. I was like, uh, if you totally disappear, you might put me in trouble on some bills, on some, you know, getting utilities and everything. So, so she promised to me that she wouldn't fully disappear. Um, and um, she went away. And two days later, she, she talked to me on the phone and sent a message. But by the way, everything I, I tell you is things I have told to the police. So it's, uh, it's not, uh, there's no secret coming out that you guys are hearing. It might be secret from a public perspective, but it's all things that the feds have been knowing for a couple of days. So the last uh, message that she sends me uh, in June, two days after leaving, 
and it had been apparent, I think I may have been in contact for a couple of times during these two days, so I was sure that she was progressing through whatever trip she wanted to do. I knew that she was still alive. Uh, but two days uh, after leaving, she says, I have changed my plans. I will not hold my promise uh, toward you. I will not be reachable. And, I, and it's like, okay. Uh, I, she says, I have a new plan. And I'm like, does your new plan involve any sort of attack against me or the family? Because you guys know how, much, how important that is to me. She says, you don't have to be worried. My new plan does not involve you. I'm just going to change cell phone. Now, I knew that she had left without any sort of electronic tracking. You know how the police can track you with your credit card, with your debit card. She had left with nothing but her phone. So when she said that to me through text, I concluded, okay, she's going off grid. You know, she's going full survivalism. <laughs> and kind of in her, in her fashion. I mean, that's the way Mama JF is. So changing her phone, to me, it meant I'm... I'm dropping potentially my own identity behind. I'm potentially disappearing in nature. I'm potentially, I mean, she could be anywhere from there. Uh, so, and that's what I was explaining to the police. You know, Mama JF, you, you remember the story she told on her video on YouTube where she talked about crossing the border in, in Spain and in the enclaves of Spain in North Africa. Mama JF is a fucking extreme, like 007 level of like fugitive mentality. Uh, and I, I was kind of telling that to the police uh, jokingly, half jokingly, but it's like she she's a professional fugitive who doesn't commit crimes. So it's like she's going to be hiding from you as, as hard as she can while also not having anything to reproach to herself. But that's just how she is. So, I mean, she, she, and so from there, I'm like, I'm going to drop myself behind. I'm going to disappear. You're not going to be able to reach me. So that is uh, what I've been knowing since June. And of course, you're faced with the big, should I call the police? This is a willing woman, a willing adult woman doing her willing stuff. So I've not called the police. Because in my view, there was no evidence of criminality. There was no evidence of distress. It looked like, to me, someone who has decided to go survivalism. Will I report someone for being survivalist? I mean, th this reminds me of the, of the Facebook post. You know, as one of your loved ones gone to survivalism? As one of your loved ones bought too much campaign material? <laughs> that is literally one of the Facebook posts. But I don't want to be in the society where buying campaign material gets you reported to the feds. And I am bound, I am bound to Mama JF Santeras because I've loved her and I still love her and I still consider, I consider myself allied to her forever. Uh, forever, no matter what she does, even if she goes out there going, getting other boyfriends, I consider myself tied to her forever. So at this point, I'm in front of this information and I've decided that this was not warranting a call to the police in June. And I've spoke to her, I've spoken to her family and they thought similarly, you know, this is Mama JF. Uh, she is an out there woman, and uh, it's not the first time she does this. Uh... Okay, I'm going to take off uh, now. Talk to you blokes later. Bye-bye.